Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Brutal heat, freezing snow, dwindling supplies. Cooking for cowboys is anything but easy. That's sort of what it takes to be a ranch cook. I mean, you're a doctor, a dentist, a psychologist, and uh, and a cook to boot. Later on in the show, cowboy Kent Rollins takes us into the world of chuck wagon cooking. But first, let's check out The Chicken Coop. Author Tova Donovich is here to make a few introductions. We have Loretta, who I've had for a very long time, but she continues to be very shy. Um, Peggy likes to sing, and she like does this sad jailhouse croon. And it's just like beautiful and, and moving. Chickens, they outnumber humans three to one. But what do we actually know about them? Tova Donovich joins us now to get inside the mind of our favorite backyard bird. Tova, welcome back to Milk Street. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So what's interesting about chickens, um, there are a lot of things that are interesting, but there's a lot of legends around chickens. Uh, you want to tell us about Mike the Headless Chicken? Because I think he stands <laughs> out in the annals of chickendom, right? Yeah, Mike the Headless Chicken, who is, you know, a really unfortunate mascot if you want to be taken seriously by people as a species. Um, He was a chicken in mid-century America who a farmer tried to slaughter for dinner. And as the theory goes, he got the head off, but somehow kept most of the spinal column intact, which allowed the chicken to be alive, more or less, without a head for, I believe, 18 months um, before he finally died. And this farmer toured Mike all around the United States and fed Mike and watered him by putting food and water in a little dropper that went directly into his esophagus, um, which was quite a picture. 
And this guy, the farmer, was making in today's dollars like over $50,000 a year touring. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it worked out for Mike too well, but it worked out for the farmer. Um, (laughs) So uh, let's talk about your journey and set up this book under the Henfluence. You wanted for a long time to own chickens. You finally got the opportunity. How did you get started in this love affair? Yeah. So like a lot of people, I came to chickens because I wanted some eggs in the backyard. Um, And I knew enough about the poultry industry to know that chickens were not treated super well. Um, So having chickens in the backyard that could, you know, lay eggs and have hens that had good lives was super appealing to me. And I was just asking all these questions about chickens and who they were and why they did the things that they did. And I wasn't really finding a lot of answers out there. So as you often do when you you are a writer, you write the article that you want to see, or in my case, the book that I want to see, which now is uh, under the influence. So you just pass by this quickly. You ordered chicks through the mail. Mm-hmm. And actually, I, I looked it up at the U.S. Post Office website, and it's section 521 of the Postal Code. <laughs> And it has the rules and regulations about live animals being shipped by the post office. But it's, it's kind of interesting. So so just tell me a little bit about the history of that. I also found it so fascinating. And until I went to get my chicks, I had no idea that anyone was shipping any kind of animals through the mail at all. So nature has you know, developed this really ingenious system where the chick's very first meal is their egg yolk. And that is enough to keep them fed for at least about 24 hours or so. So some people were artificially incubating and hatching chicks and started trying to ship chicks first very short distances and then got farther. And so, you know, shipping chicks by mail has been going on from the late 1800s. So what what are some of your favorite breeds and what are some of the most interesting looking chickens? They are just a range of fascinating. I think most people, when they think of a chicken, have that image of the little red hen or maybe the black and white hen, and they have like the classic, you know, kind of fat, fluffy chicken body. But not all chickens look like that at all. I have some in my flock who fit in the palm of my hand. They're only, you know, five or six inches tall. One of them, she's a Belgian millefleur ducal bantam is the full proper name. Um, But she has these giant foot feathers that kind of look like snowshoes. She has this cute little beard on her face and she's tiny. So some chickens can be little and other chickens can be, you know, nearly three feet tall if you get into roosters of the giant breed. So there's really such a range in the world of chickens, which makes it really fun. What do you do with the eggs from a six-inch high chicken? (laughs) Yeah, we do eat them. Um, They are, you know, maybe a third of the size of a regular egg. Um, But the yolks are pretty similar in size to larger breed chicken eggs. So they're really great, actually, for making ice cream. So here's an uncomfortable question, but it sounds like the chicken industry, you know, they're killed at 18 months because of the molting they're killed at six weeks if they're for meat. At, at what point does someone stand up and say, look, we're going to raise animals for meat, but we're going to have some rules around this, you know, that that make it, I don't know what you want to say, not not morally acceptable, but at least more mm-hmm. morally acceptable than what we're doing now. Or, or those, those discussions never actually happen. There are a lot of people trying to have those discussions, um, certainly. But yeah, when you lay it all out like that in a list, things are bad for the chicken. Um, And especially when you look at, you know, these hens that are the egg layers that are killed at 18 months, you know, maybe 300 million of them or so a year, they don't even go into the food supply because of those breast heavy broiler chickens that are killed at six weeks old, as you mentioned. They put on so much meat so quickly that the price of meat is really low. And so it actually costs more money to slaughter one of these laying hens and turn them into food than you would get back. So they're just commonly landfilled or composted. It's just a huge loss of life from beginning to end. But a lot of these poultry growers, as they're commonly called, who do meat chickens, 
they farm on contract farming, which is very similar to like old time, terrible sharecropping methods. And they are just treated terribly and go into near bankruptcy all the time. It's really an industry that is ripe for reform from all angles. Um, but it's it's slow going because, you know, the poultry industry is a major industry in this country. And there's a lot of agricultural lobbying that stops anything from happening. Now, you say something. This is really interesting. After hatching, chicks raised by hens are kinder to each other. Yeah, a lot of people have done, you know, different small behavioral studies on chickens and especially ones that are raised in artificial incubators versus with a mother hen. And that is one of the many changes that take place. They're actually just nicer to each other. You know, hens actually talk to their chicks while they are still in the eggs. And scientists have discovered that that sound of the mother hen actually is kickstarting their brain and creating new neural pathways that chickens hatched artificially don't have. But yeah, it's really kind of incredible when you think about we have all these chickens, the vast majority are hatched artificially. And what are the chickens losing by that? One of the great little bits in your book is about The National, which is a mm -hmm. chicken show. And you say, I love this, the first dog show came 30 years after poultry shows were already established mm -hmm. and were wildly popular events. So two days, thousands of birds. Just tell us what the national is like. The Ohio National is the largest poultry show in the United States, and it is a joy. <laughs> if you are ever in Ohio in late November uh, when it takes place, I definitely recommend giving it a visit. People travel from all across the country to bring their chickens to this show, and they are judged against the American standard of perfection, as it is called, which is like the platonic ideal of what a black copper marin's chicken looks like or a salmon favrole or any of these other many breeds of chickens that are out there. So is this like dog breeds? Like some of them are extraordinarily expensive if they're the lineage and everything else? To an extent, it doesn't go to the prices that dogs get to, or, you know, certainly when you're talking like racehorses. But I think you'll find that a lot of us chicken keepers are just surprised by how attached they get to these animals and how personable they are and silly. Um, I mean, they come in all these shapes and sizes and colors. They're really fun to look at, but they're also just ridiculous. I don't know if you have ever had the pleasure of seeing a chicken run, but I've had chickens five years now, and I still think it's absolutely hilarious every time I see it. They have those fluffy pantaloons, and they just bounce. And they go from side to side, and they, they yeah, look like they're drunk. Yeah, it's just the silliest. Yeah, it's amazing. So. Well, there, there is a certain cachet. I mean, I, years and years ago, uh, I lived in the same town as Martha Stewart. She invited me over, uh -huh. and I, I saw her hen house, yes. which, I mean, perfectly clean, gorgeous chickens, beautifully colored eggs. I mean, for her— it was practical, I suppose, on one level, but they were also colorful and sort of part of the story, right? I mean, they, mm -hmm. they, they do add color and charm to your backyard. Yeah, you know, chickens can be quite popular. And Martha Stewart certainly, I think, was the very first henfluencer, but there are a lot more. And my chickens also have a very popular <laughs> Instagram over the years that I've been taking pictures of them and putting it online. And I believe as of now, they have like 126,000 followers, which is wow. way more than I do on any of my social media. So people like looking at chickens. Tobin, thank you so much. Uh, what a pleasure. Thank you. It has been excellent to be here. That was Tova Donovich, proud chicken owner and author of Under the Henfluence, Inside the World of Backyard Chickens and the People Who Love Them. Now it's time to answer a few of your baking questions with Cheryl Day. Cheryl is the owner of Back in the Day Bakery in Savannah, Georgia. She's also the author of Cheryl Day's Treasury of Southern Baking. So Cheryl... I found that dark pans and light pans and gold pans make a difference in baking time, but also the gauge of the pans, nonstick pans versus not nonstick. So for baking pans, let's say for cakes, 
is there something that's most consistent or does it really just not matter? You just adjust the baking time. I mean, you can adjust, but you don't want some, you know, cheap pan that's too flimsy that you can literally bend it about. So I do love a heavier cake pan. And what about the color? Do you use like that gold? Some of those pans are sort of in between. Some of them are dark. Some of them are light. Does it matter? Yeah, if we're talking bunt pans, I tend to use kind of that darker, not the gold, but they're kind of like a grayish kind of color. But for the other, no, it doesn't have to be gold for me. (laughs) What about nonstick? Some people say use a nonstick pan. You don't have to season the pan or put parchment paper down. But I don't think that's really true, is it? It isn't true, especially with, you know, talking about like a simple cake, like a bunt cake. And those absolutely do not work just from the nonstick. I still find myself putting butter and flour to make sure that I'm going to get a good release. Plus, they'll last a lot longer, too, if you're not kind of prying your cake out of a pan. I do love to use parchment, of course, just on regular cake pans, but, well, you cannot do that with a bun cake, obviously. Yeah, I was doing a video on making a bun cake a few months ago, and I let it cool, and I turned it over and everything, and then I was hitting, you know, banging it to get it out, and about a third of the cake stuck to the pan when it came out. Yeah, (laughs) that happens. It was a great video. (laughs) Well, so what I found, the trick to a bunt cake, I set my timer for like 25 minutes, which it's still hot, but when it's cool enough where I can touch it, which, you know, it's pretty hot from my hands, But that's when you want to turn it out. Otherwise, forget about it. It's not going to come out right away. It's just not. Then you have to pull out, like, you know, the plumber's torch and all kinds of tricks that you can do. But generally, if it's really warm, that's when it's going to fall right out of the bunt pan. I wish I'd talked to you six months ago. Okay. (laughs) Well, that's the the thing. When you're baking every day... You do learn, learn. hopefully, something every day. Well, you wouldn't still be in the business. Okay, (laughs) let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, Cheryl and Christopher. This is Jean Glover from Savannah, Georgia. Jean Glover. Hello. I'm excited to hear your question. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) As Cheryl well knows, I'm a real foodie, as are my three kids. We've all known Cheryl since back in the day, opened about 20 years ago, and they've been cooking with love from her many books. My youngest daughter is a marine biologist currently working on a remote, uninhabited Pacific island, living and working under what one would probably call beach camping conditions. Uh, There is a kitchen tent that has a propane stove and a pop-up oven on top of it with one rack, and it gets very, very hot. The temperature is typically in the mid-90s and high humidity. Um, she attempted to bake your cinnamon rolls, Cheryl, and actually texted me to ask me about a buttermilk substitute and then about the filling. They have no internet access, so troubleshooting is challenging. But her general question is, you know, if you have any baking tips in such a limited, rustic environment, they have pantry items, they have a small refrigerator and a small freezer. Chris, have you ever baked camping at all? Is that something that you ever do? Yeah, I've actually baked uh, in a hurricane on the Cape, and I had to bake on a charcoal grill. Wow. So I've made cobblers, I've made cakes, and it worked out, you know, pretty well, but it it wasn't a high humidity condition, which is different. Jean, I would tell her, since she is mixing it by hand, she can really get a sense of how the dough feels, and she may have to cut back on some of the liquid and add a little bit more flour. Did you have anything, Chris, to add? Well, I haven't baked on a remote island in a tent in 100% (laughs) humidity. I just think more flour, right? And you probably may have to bake it longer because of the high moisture content to have everything set up. So I would just say, you know, less liquid, more dry ingredients and longer baking time. Those would be the three things I would say. But I I would think uh, like a cinnamon bun, though, you know, when you have that coating on the outside mm-hmm. with the sugar, I would think, Cheryl, you know better than I do, but that kind of a sugar situation could be dicey in humidity, right? Yeah, I mean, but expectations probably, you know, to be getting something that's fresh baked and sweet. I hope that her coworkers really <laughs> appreciate what she's doing. I'm sure they do. 
I think they do. I think they all bring their unique skills and talents to this several month field camp journey they're on. So I was also wondering if she has small empty cans from other provisions, whether she could bake in those cans, say a fruit cobbler or a crisp type of thing that would shorten the bacon time, presumably because it's a smaller vessel and whether that would help. Does that make any sense? I've never done that. Have you, Chris? Well, you can bake brown bread, right? Right. You know, right. Uh, you're in Boston. In cans, right? I don't think it would solve a problem, particularly. Okay. But you certainly could, yeah. It'd be resourceful, for sure. Yeah, there you go. Another question that Sarah had, because they're primarily using canned items and some pantry items, too, but nothing fresh, per se, they're saving liquid from chickpeas. And if you had any ideas on savory ideas for baking with aquafaba or chickpea liquid... Yeah, aquafaba can be whipped like egg whites, really. It can be a substitute for egg whites. You can actually use it for that, and it it does actually work, yeah. I love those questions. Thank you for calling, and we'd love a picture of this, of someone baking cinnamon rolls in the middle of nowhere. That would be great. When she's finished, I'll be sure to send some. Thank you. All right, thank you. Thanks for calling. Thanks, Gene. Love your show. Thank you. Take care. Yeah, take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Cheryl and I are here to answer your cooking and baking questions. Give us a ring anytime. Our number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Beth from Wadsworth, Ohio. Hi, Beth. How are you? Hi, I'm doing good. How are you guys? Great. Good. Thanks for By the calling. way, where's Wadsworth? Wadsworth is west of Akron and south of Cleveland. Okay. Now we have you located on the map. Uh, <laughs> how can we help you? I have two very different cookie recipes. One calls for oleo, butter, flour, egg yolks, sour cream, and yeast. And the other one calls for brown and white sugar, shortening, sour milk, soda, and flour. Hmm. Even though they're both very different, they both say that I should refrigerate the dough overnight. And I was wondering, does the dough really need to be refrigerated overnight? Yes. The one with yeast, uh, yeah, it's a cold ferment, which means it'll slowly do its magic in the fridge. And that Ah. will also develop some flavor and you'll get the right texture. The other one is just baking soda. You could go ahead, but if you chill the dough, obviously it's easier to work with. If you chill the dough overnight, it'll probably end up being chewier and it'll concentrate flavors because it dehydrates a bit. But it's easier to work with is the easy answer. And the yeast one probably needs to do that just to develop the yeast over time. Cheryl? Well, so yeah, the answer is yes, I guess, and no. (laughs) For the second one, you don't have to, but I do restos and I'll tell you why. I've gotten into long conversations with other baker friends. One of my friends has a bakery, Nicole Rucker in Los Angeles. All she makes is cookies and pies, or mostly that. And we've had long conversation about what that resting period does with the dough. Mm. And basically, you're allowing the gluten to relax and the flavors to marry, even in a cookie. Something as simple as a cookie, believe it or not. The flour is going to be fully hydrated, and it's going to change the texture, and you'll get this deep golden brown color that you just won't get if you bake it the same day, because everything Mm -hmm. is just, it's what we call an aged cookie dough, has more complex flavor from resting it overnight. That's good to know. Thanks, you guys. You're so welcome. Thank you for calling. Thank you. Yep, love the show. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio, coming up the secrets of chuck wagon cooking right after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is 
the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are and I think that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it you're reminded like oh wow Yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Year Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Ken Rollins cooks for cowboys. That means making coffee in sub-zero temperatures and grilling meat in the blazing sun. It also means baking bread at high altitudes, which does have its disadvantages. I can remember making biscuits, waiting for them to rise, and they never would. And one of them hunters said, is that flat bread? And I said, it is today, brother. Ken Rollins joins us now to share what he's learned from 30 years of cooking for cowboys. Ken, uh, welcome to Mill Street. Hey, Chris, thank you so much for having us on, brother. It is my pleasure and my honor. You know, I rode horses for years, and uh, you're making me— <laughs> now I'm getting nostalgic for my horse and saddle and uh, all of those days. So you started out helping your dad with the cows, and then you had a herd of your own. But you also, I, I read, you started your cooking career while guiding and feeding elk hunters— in the wilderness in New Mexico. I just thought that was interesting. So how long were these hunts? How were you cooking? What was it like? You know, it was, um, 
850,000-acre wilderness, one of the oldest put in by Roosevelt, the Gila Wilderness. And it ranges in elevation from really about 4,500 to around 105, 10.8. And cooking for hunters is sort of like cooking for cowboys. You're just packing it in on a mule or a horse. You know, we would go in in the first part of September. That's when coos deer hunting started, and you would have a few of them. And then you got into the really the, the height of the season, which was uh, elk hunting for two weeks, uh, and then mule deer mm. after that. Let's talk about the chuck wagon. Um, my only experience with the chuck wagon probably comes from the Lonesome Dub series in the 70s, like a lot of people. And I just thought they had a wagon. But I saw in some of your videos, your chuck wagon is a very specific thing. So could you just describe it for us? Because I I don't think most people are familiar with what a chuck wagon really is. Well, it's the first meals on wheels out there going really is what it is. And any wagon could become a chuck wagon. You just take the grain boards out of the back and slip a chuck box in there that somebody designed or you built yourself. And ours is a 1876 Studebaker. Studebaker was the only wagon company that successfully transferred over into automobiles and uh, was very prosperous at it for a long time. But uh, every wagon I was ever on or around or cooked off of was arranged a little different. You know, I'm always interested in how movies or TV shows portray cooks on the trail. And I think the two ends of the spectrum were both in Lonesome Dove Boulevard, who was the cook at the camp. There was that scene where the percolators on the cook stove and grounds are jumping and in coffee into the into the skillet with the beans he didn't really care and then there was Poe Campo who was sort of the complete opposite who was just a brilliant cook and could take anything and make it good do you think that that was true that there was just a huge range it's just like today some cooks just can do amazing things like you and other cowboys had to sort of make do with whatever they had you know the the cook was the most important guy that you could really hire on a cattle drive because if you can keep a crew fed well, they're going to work better. And uh, I've been really fortunate. Cowboys uh, respected me from my time horseback, but also on the cooking fire. So I, I'd love to walk into a Starbucks with you because I love your description of cowboy coffee. And I grew up with percolator coffee and boil coffee like a lot of people did in the 50s and uh, 60s. And you make a very strong case that cowboy coffee is is great because it's not bitter or acidic. So how do you make it, and, and why is it so mellow? Well, when you, when you make cowboy coffee really the right way and the only way that I've ever made it, it's got to come to a, a rolling bowl, not a spit and a sputter or just a simmer. And when you boil coffee, we try to boil it four to five minutes on that old wood stove, and it's breaking down the tannin in the bean, which releases the acid, and it's gone, and then you have smooth coffee. Uh, I've told folks for years and years, if if you have acid indigestion or acid reflux due to coffee, well, you won't have it with this. To me, it's a very unique taste that it brings out in the coffee itself, uh, but it is so smooth. Well, you know, it was sort of funny, I guess, because all those years people had boiled coffee and— then everyone decided boiled coffee was terrible coffee, but <laughs> I, 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 I got to go back and try that. Um, so let's talk about the Dutch ovens. So the early Dutch ovens, I think, tended to have a rim around the top, right, so we could hold coals on the top of it as well as around the bottom? Yes. You know, Dutch ovens and camp ovens, uh, you know, one has feet, one don't. One has a domed lid. The other has a rim on the outside edge of the lid, which holds the coals on there. You can bake anything in one of them that you can bake in a conventional oven in the house. You know, you have to sort of learn how to regulate your temperature. Uh, but to be able to cook and bake in cast iron gives food such a unique flavor. What is it like if it's zero out? Does it make it harder to cook? You have ways of cooking when it's that cold out versus when it's, let's say, 100 degrees out? I would rather cook, Chris, any day that's zero than any day that's 100. <laughs> You know, I've uh, I've stood by a fire for over 31 or two years uh, cooking for cowboys. And, you know, my old wagon, when you got the tarp that goes over the wagon is what they call the fly. And then I have snap-in walls that will close it all in. 
but if you're having to cook outside that area, always heated the ground uh, with that old propane torch, you know, to where it wasn't just going to take all the heat out of them coals at one time. Huh. It takes a little more coals to actually cook something when it's that right. cold. Uh, but if cowboys can work in it, you can cook in it. So the staples, beef, obviously, dried beans, you didn't have a lot of fresh <laughs> vegetables or fruits, obviously. So w- what were the half dozen staples, salt, pork, bacon, et cetera? Yeah, the, and people a lot of times are confused, too, the, you know, thinking they eat a lot of beef. Uh, well, if if one was crippled or one got hurt or one died on the trail, sure, he was camp meat, but uh, that beef was going to the market, so most of the time it was off limits. Mostly they started out with um, with a lot of coffee, a lot of flour, sugar, salt, some dried fruit if they could find it, but a, a lot of hardtack, some jerky meat, molasses, and uh various spices that he might have at the time, which be cinnamon and maybe a little nutmeg. So what happens when you run out of something? What are some last-minute substitutions you've had to make? Well, you know, when we're on a ranch, we, uh, depending on the stay, either from five days or five and a half weeks, we make a menu and a grocery list. I add usually anywhere from two to five days to it because Mother Nature is in charge of what's going on out there. Weather-wise, you get snowed out, blowed out, uh, washed away. But you you learn to improvise with what you have and what will substitute for something else. And, uh, you know, it's when you run out of eggs, it's r- really not a good thing. But, you know, mayonnaise will, will take the place in a lot of recipes for eggs if you're adding them to a cake or you're adding them to cornbread or something like that. Mm-hmm. But also, you know... We use a lot of canned milk, and if you need to make that into buttermilk, well, you can add lemon juice or you can add vinegar. Uh, there's so many things that you can substitute for something you ain't got. You always improvised. You always got by, and um, that's sort of what it takes to be a ranch cook. I mean, you're a doctor, a dentist, a psychologist, <laughs> and, uh, and a cook to boot. So what makes a good cowboy? Is it just your approach and your philosophy is it your personality or the specific skills? I mean, what's the difference between someone who's really good at it and someone who isn't? Uh, there was an old feller I met on a ranch one time, and uh, he was the boss of the outfit, and this young guy's telling him about, I can rope this, and I can do this, and my horse can outrun this. And uh, he let him talk for about 30 minutes, and then he looked at him, and he said, Son, out here, we don't speak words. We just let our actions show what we can do. Mm. You know, from the from the Western pictures of cowboys in the movies to really what it is, uh, a lot of that is totally different. Cowboys are the most polite people I've ever been around in my life, but they're a jack of all trades. I mean, not only is he great horseback, but this same guy can crawl a windmill tire and fix a windmill, or he'll build some fence, or he can work on an old car, or he can work on a pickup because he just has to get by with what he's got. Well, like old farmers too, right? Yes. You, you know, you've got, you got some bailing twine, you've got a screwdriver, a hammer, and you've and you got to fix the clutch on your 49 farm all. Yeah. And, and figure out how to do it. Um, so let's go back to food. Um, the American burger dog, what, what is that? You know, uh, I was at a cookout one time, and this guy said, all these people here think it's like a restaurant. Some of them want a hamburger, some of them want a hot dog. And I always thought about him, and I'm thinking – why don't you just combine both, and then you ain't near the mix-up? People can just come up there and say, I want a burger dog, uh, which is really some 80-20 good certified Angus beef rolled out. Then you grill you a good hot dog out there, and we typically use Nathan's and slap them in the middle of that. And you can put cheese in there, jalapenos, whatever you want. Roll it back up with that hamburger meat, sort of like you was making a sushi roll. Cook it up and... Uh, to me, it's uh, it's five star dining. It is. It is a great meal. Um, so, what about chicken fried steak? Now, give me the sales pitch for chicken fried steak, because I, I I'm from the east, and and that's chicken fried steak is not common on menus out here. Well, really, the term started out from the Dust Bowl and the Depression, uh, to where when you would chicken fry a piece of meat, like uh, the batter itself is really what they're talking about to make. A piece of meat appeared to be bigger. Uh, You could feed more people with it. Uh, My dad and them said they had a lot of deep-fried jackrabbit like that. Uh, It it would make the meat go farther. When you think about chicken fried steak, 
uh, you double batter this thing, or as we call it, double baptize it. Uh, you got a big old thick crust on there on a five and a half ounce uh, piece of meat, and you cover that up with gravy and got some mashed potatoes. Well, you done you done knocked home run right there. You know, you're the first person who's ever explained that to me clearly. Now I get it. So, putting aside the food and the cooking for a moment, there are lots of other reasons that you love doing what you do. So, what are some of those reasons? You know, uh, I've been in places that a GPS couldn't find, Mm. uh, met people that should be considered heroes if everybody knew them, Uh, people that stood tall as giant oak trees that uh, were stewards of the land, uh, loved God and country, and loved the job that they were doing. Uh, Cook always made twice the money that the Cowboys did, and I can remember cooking for my first ranch. I was making $35 a day, Uh, and them was really, really long days. But it's like an old man told me. He said, when you stay in here four weeks, you think we won the lottery. And he said, Ken, if we was doing it for the money, we never would have started. And uh, really, that's true because it's, it's, a, it's a passion that I have in my heart to see the country. We have the best view at our kitchen window every day. Hmm. Ken, it's been a, a rare pleasure having you on the show. I thank you so much for spending some time with me. Oh, it is my pleasure, brother. You stay in the saddle, and I hope it's smooth riding. That was Ken Rollins. His latest book is Comfort Food, The Cowboy Way, Backyard Favorites, Country Classics, and Stories from a Ranch Cook. You can also find him on his YouTube channel, Cowboy Kent Rollins. Kent Rollins boils his coffee. He says that five minutes of hard boiling breaks down the tannins That means you'll never have acid indigestion with his cup of cowboy coffee. Yet, a few months back, I spoke to a coffee expert who told me that you need to use an expensive burr grinder, the precise number of grams of coffee, and a French press method that has to be followed to the letter. So my question is, how do we end up with a culture that demands the unyielding pursuit of perfection? The best cup of coffee, the best glass of wine, the best restaurant, the very best slice of apple pie. But maybe perfection is God's business, not ours, and a cup of cowboy coffee is indeed a recipe for the good life. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett from Away With Words explain what to do when life hands you lemons. That's up after the break. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. 
Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Cheryl Day and I will be answering a few more of your baking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Marilyn Upton from Columbia, Missouri. Hi, Marilyn. How can we help you? Well, my son is getting married at the first of next month to a woman who is of Serbian descent, and the wedding will be a traditional Serbian Orthodox wedding with a Serbian Orthodox reception, which means all the guests usually bring a dessert. Well, first of all, congratulations. Thank you very much. And I was recently at a shower, and the number of desserts is incredible. And it's about a 10-hour drive, and I'm trying to figure a dessert that might withstand four days or actually get better four days mm. up to the wedding or something you would recommend preparing ahead of time that sure. could maybe be finished off. Because we're renting a house. I just don't know how um, what equipment the kitchen might have. So right. any suggestions you can give me? Absolutely. The first thing that comes to mind for me is a hummingbird cake. Oh, I love them. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, it's got bananas, which is going to keep it super moist, and the pineapple, and then it gets frosted with cream cheese. So I would bake the cake, wrap it. You can freeze the cake, and then when you're traveling, either keep it out to thaw or just bring it out the day before. And then make the frosting in advance. Keep that in the refrigerator because, like you said, you don't know what you're going to be up against. And I think that would be beautiful with edible flowers. Just keep it really simple. Another one would be a carrot cake. That would keep very well also. Chris, what do you think? Do you have any ideas? Any cake, like a rum cake that has... A syrup, a simple syrup, or yeah, that's a good idea. Rum syrup. Those syrup-based cakes do or last a long syrup. time. Yeah, th- okay. that also okay. works pretty well. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Oh yeah, yes. The non-Serbs bring the bunt cake, and the you know they're the non-Greeks, and, and the Greek family puts a plant in the middle of it because they don't know what to do with the whole. Right, so. right. <laughs> <laughs> We have to try to figure that out. We have to represent this side of his family. Right, yeah, because there'll be plenty of baklava, stuff the grandmas make. It's actually a lot of fun, but I would like to make this side of the family proud. Then I would stay away from anything that you know that side of the family specializes in, and I would bring something that's very American. Definitely something that has some sort of a glaze would be good or syrup. Yeah, and as Cheryl said, a cake, like chiffon cakes have oil in them. Right. The cake she just mentioned has oil in it. So any cake that has like half a cup of oil Mm -hmm. in it as a base, those things tend to last pretty well, too. Okay, what about an olive oil cake? I've made... Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They're great. Yeah, Yeah. that would be great. I would just use a very mild olive oil. Right, right. Okay. How many desserts do you think you'll bring? I'll just bring one because there's a 300 people invited to the wedding, and there will probably be 150 cakes oh my goodness. on the dessert table. <laughs> well, yours has to stand out then. Exactly. I think the edible flowers is an awesome idea. So that would oh, be yeah. really a lot of fun. So fun. Okay, terrific. Terrific. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I thank really you, and good it. luck. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you're looking for a bit of inspiration, just give us a ring, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? 
Hi, Chris. It's Gail in Eugene, Oregon. Hi, Gail. How can we help you? Well, I'd like to make some marzipan-colored fruits for some friends who are both vegan and diabetic. Oh, boy. (laughs) I'm at sea about what to use as a binder and what to use as a sweetener. Well, it's the old aquafaba, you know, routine. It's that liquid in the canned chickpeas. I've used it one time for a vegan dinner. It works Uh well. It it actually does actually whip up pretty well. I think maybe two tablespoons for each egg white, something like that. But it actually does work. So that's the liquid in a can of chickpeas. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, that's it. And then as far as the sugar goes, you don't want a liquid sweetener. You know, you'd want something, a powdered substitute of some kind. Such as maybe, oh, monk fruit. It comes in both a syrup and a dry. And I wonder, should I put it in the liquid and then beat the liquid or add it dry? You're going to want to use it dry. You definitely want to use it dry. The question, of course, is how much to use. But I guess the box might give you some indication of that. Sure. Well, Chris, when you next try this (laughs) recipe... Please put it on your Milk Street program. It's a wonderful program. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for calling. Thanks for calling. Thank right. you. Thanks, Bye. Cheryl. Thanks, Chris. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now let's head into the kitchen with Lynn Clark to talk about this week's recipe, tomato salad with peanuts, cilantro, and chipotle sesame dressing. Lynn, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. How are you? Well, I'm sad. Uh, (laughs) I'm sorry. Day after day, week after week, year after year, we're confronted with tasteless tomatoes. So we're going to do a tomato salad, but you're going to figure out, please, how (laughs) to imbue the tomato with flavor. Well, I'm going to do my best, and we have kind of two approaches here. We're using some really unique and intense flavors And we're also going to use a little common technique that's used with tomatoes to really enhance and concentrate their flavor. So this is a tomato salad with peanuts, cilantro, and chipotle sesame dressing. Um, It takes its flavor cues from a Mexican salsa matcha. Mm, So we just take some peanuts, fry them in oil, some sesame seeds, and then into the sesame seeds, we mix some chipotle chili and adobo some vinegar, some salt and pepper. There's a lot of flavor packed in here. And then we're also going to use a common trick to really concentrate the actual tomato flavor. This would not be salting, would it? (laughs) (laughs) It would. See, I I knew you would know. You take your tomatoes, and if you're using bigger tomatoes, you'll cut them into wedges, smaller tomatoes in half. You just want to expose the flesh, toss that with some kosher salt, and let it sit. And that'll draw out some of the moisture in the tomato and really concentrates the sweetness of the tomato and also adds some salt. So we toss the tomatoes after they've sat for a while with that chili mixture we made, chop up those peanuts along with any fresh herb you've got around. You can use cilantro, basil, uh, parsley in here. And then finish it off, if you feel like it, with a little bit of flaky salt, maybe some cotija cheese. And you've got these really sweet tomatoes balanced with the saltiness of the nuts um, and these smoky, spicy chipotle flavors. It's a really unique but also really flavorful tomato salad, something a little different than your typical caprese or panzanella. So, Lynn, you solved the problem of tomatoes with a... Peanut cilantro, jaboli sesame dressing. So even if you have a bad supermarket tomato, you still have a good salad. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome. You can get the recipe for tomato salad with peanuts, cilantro, and chipotle sesame dressing at MilkStreetRadio.com. Now it's time for some freezer door cocktails from our editorial director, J.M. Hirsch. So I want to talk to you about my current summer obsession, freezer door cocktails. Now, I'm not talking about slushies or syrupy frozen margaritas. I'm talking about whole bottles of your favorite cocktail that live on your freezer door, perfectly chilled and ready to drink whenever you are. It's actually really, really simple. So here's the gist. You start with a full bottle of the primary liquor of your favorite cocktail. Then you pour off just enough to 
add enough of the other ingredients needed to make a full bottle of that cocktail. Give it a good shake, stir it on the freezer door, done. So, for summer, let's make a classic freezer door daiquiri. You're going to start with a full 750 milliliter bottle of white rum and pour off 7 ounces. Now, add to the bottle 2 ounces of lime juice, 2 ounces of water, 1 and 3 quarter ounces of simple syrup or agave syrup, and a quarter teaspoon of Peychaud's bitters. Cap it, shake it, freeze it. When you want to drink it, pour it over ice and maybe add a lime wedge to garnish. That's it. Summer drinking simplified on your freezer door. By the way, if you'd like to learn more about how to make freezer door cocktails, follow us on Instagram at 177 Milk Street. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now it's time to check in with Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett. Grant, Martha, what's, uh, what's up? Well, Chris, at the moment, Grant and I are both cooling off with a refreshing pitcher of lemonade. Yeah, we're on the front porch in the swing, and we're thinking <laughs> about the sweet and sour of life. Uh-oh, th- this is going to be deep, I can tell. <laughs> well, maybe instead of lemonade, you'd rather sip a half lemonade, half tea. You know, that's called an Arnold Palmer after yeah. the golfer who loved that drink. It's sometimes called half and half or sunshine tea. And we should also note that a Winnie Palmer is named for his wife, and that's made out of sweet tea and lemonade. In the days I'd play golf a little bit, I think every place I ever played people ordered Arnold Palmer at golf courses. So I, I, I guess that's where it started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there are, of course, tons of variations now. Some we won't go into, but they're more alcoholic than ever. And uh, Martha, I don't know how much lemon and lime we have today, but we could go on and on with this. We could. We could have a great lemon and lime, as a matter of fact. And that's time. It's rhyming slang for time. We have all the lemon and lime in the world, right, Chris? You're going to give us the full hour to do this? Oh, yeah. No problem, guys. If you, <laughs> if you don't hear me talking, it's not a problem. Yeah. <laughs> or we could go to Trinidad together, and we could just do some liming, which means hanging around or chilling huh. or just... Relaxing, again, with a cold lemonade, maybe. Oh, I like that one. That's good. Yeah, that's a good one. And, of course, if life hands you lemons, there are lots of things that you can do besides make lemonade. When life hands you a lemon, you can ask for salt and tequila. Yeah, good point. (laughs) Yeah, that's one of the variants in English and in German. The old expression about when life hands you lemons, uh, make lemonade, goes back to probably 1910 or so. But it has reached a dozen European languages and probably many more world languages. It's such a great expression about making the best of a bad situation, just turning it on its head. Well, you can also be assertive. You know, when life gives you lemons, ask for something higher in protein. I like that one. There we go. That's it. That's for the weightlifters out there. (laughs) And sometimes life is so hard on you that it squeezes you like a lemon. It just exhausts you. So all that is left is the rind and the pulp, and there's none of the juice. I'm getting behind that one. (laughs) I'm, I'm juiced. I'm totally juiced. We'll say le citron, to squeeze the lemon, literally, but also figuratively, to rack your brains. To squeeze the lemon oh. means to rack the brains. And Chris, I hope nobody's ever tossed you aside like a squeezed lemon. That's pretty grim. It's bad enough to get squeezed, but then being thrown out <laughs> is like right. insult injury, right? And then there's this odd expression that you might hear among Pennsylvania German speakers. At one time, they might have said... Three teams on the road and yet no limits. And this refers to teams of horses and their drivers. And it's about having lots of opportunity or abundance, but still not having what you want. Can I ask a question? Were lemons, when that expression, I don't know when the expression comes from, the 19th century, were were lemons common at at that time? No, they were were particularly precious. And if you got them, they came up from the south, you know, obviously. And so it was... uh, in the, in the north in Pennsylvania, you weren't likely to encounter lemons except as this precious uh, commodity. Well, Chris, it looks like we've run out of lemon and lime, and I'm going to have to get up and get a refill here. But it is always great liming with you, Chris. Uh, the my, highlight of my week. Oh, no. <laughs> but Martha, no lime. <laughs> you've got to take him aside and, and buy him an Arnold Palmer with some tequila in it, maybe. There you go. Grand Martha, as always, a pleasure. Thank you. Our pleasure. Take care, Chris. Bye, Chris. That was Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. That's it for today. You can find all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you do get your podcasts. 
To learn more about Mill Street, go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can become a member and get full access to every recipe, access to all of our live stream cooking classes, free standard shipping from the Milk Street store, and more. You can also learn about our latest cookbook, Milk Street Noodles. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories and kitchen questions. And thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Associate producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. 